Are you suffering from poor decision-making skills, lack of self-confidence and self-esteem? Do you have impeded development of social, emotional, and sexual skills? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Rachel, and you might be suffering from religious trauma. I left evangelicalism and started a podcast. I talk about my experience with purity culture, why I left, and the journey afterwards. I'm happy you're here. Come along for the ride. Cheers to leaving. Thanks for joining us. Rachel, can you introduce our guest, please? Yes. Uh, today we have Josie McSkimming, all the way from Australia. Um, we are so glad that you could join us today. I know it's like a 15-hour difference, but very excited to have you. Um, I would like to start off just a little bit uh, with telling us about yourself, your background in religion. Um, we'll start there. Just sure, a little bit about sure. yourself and your background. Well, I didn't grow up in a sort of a, an explicitly churchy family. So my family was sort of nominally Church of England, Anglican, Episcopalian equivalent. And my father's Jewish, so non-practicing. So that's sort of my background. And I was converted at a young age, about 10, at a church camp. And very fervently, very passionately and feverishly, one of those church camps, you have them like summer camps, where they tell you to make Jesus your saviour, Lord of your life. Um, I know I said I was 10, but I don't think I was in a very good place in primary school. And this seemed to be the answer. So I came home with all my religious zeal and from then on tried to convert the family. <laughs> we have all been there after church camp, coming home and being like, I am so on fire for God. And now I need to tell everyone about it <laughs> and call everyone out. <laughs> It's scary, embarrassing, and my mother was sort of suitably horrified that I told her how she wasn't a Christian and that is she funny. didn't read the Bible and all the rest of it. So it looks, it subsided a little bit, but then um, I started going to the local church and the local youth fellowship, and I got very involved with my school group. And so it went on, but it probably became absolutely... Um, dynamic in a negative sense now but I suppose then I thought it was positive when I went to university and at university there was a very very strong evangelical group a campus bible study which I became involved with and there was lots of training and ministry training and then of course you're on a trajectory you're on the conveyor belt towards full-time ministry training evangelism i made evangelism videos had oh my friends. gosh that People are you so embarrassed now <laughs> i think i would die if somebody <laughs> told me that they still had seen some of those and these were from years ago they're so. on youtube still they're just circulating oh, the I internet to think josie mcskimmings is still converting people to christianity to this day <laughs> Through old no. YouTube videos. <laughs> no. They'd be very dated now. Early 80s. Yikes. 
so 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 that was kind of the path and then you know got married young as you do because you know you can't burn in passion so got married very young had children church leadership ladies Mm. bible study so this was the trajectory and really the whole evangelical church dominated my adult life um, and till I was in my 40s. So I was very well marinated, totally immersed. Nobody could ever say that I wasn't a true Christian. I absolutely was. And, you know, the question of deconstruction or leaving or that whole path, that exit path out, it's kind of complicated, and this is what I've read in my book, written in my book and in my research, is that it is a slow, slow process, the leaving. And now I can look at it, and it happened over 20 years. And I've called it those sites of injury where you have those moments, those interactions, those moments of doubt, those conversations, the moments of conflict and disagreement and difficulty that basically form a pattern and in the end I think they all kind of concertina into a moment where you go, what on earth am I doing with my life? But it is not at all quick. It isn't as though there's just one major epiphany and then you're gone. For me, it was that slow drift, that very slow drift, and I didn't want to draw attention to myself that I was drifting because it invites too many questions. And then there is that requisite and necessary counselling that you're given. But what I did discover is that as you withdraw from the community, they gradually withdraw from you. And I only realised this retrospectively. I wasn't planning it particularly. I just started to not put my hand up for all the leadership positions. That's the first step. Mm -hmm. And eventually you stop going to church. People don't notice for a while. And then when they do notice, I kind of had a story. And then I said I was looking for another church. Anyway, I kind of tried to go under the radar because I did not want to invite that level of scrutiny. You know how it goes. They want to talk to you and do all the apologetics and persuasion, and I didn't want to defend my position. I didn't think I had to. I didn't want to justify where I was up to. I didn't think it was necessary. So that was my overall trajectory. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's funny as you're talking, like, I feel like that was my exit a little bit out of the church as well. Just things you don't notice. You just slowly stop going. You slowly yeah. stop talking to people. You slowly stop. And I don't even know if you realize yourself that that is exactly what you're doing, but it, it's exactly what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's only perhaps years later, that whole retrospective making sense of the journey that you realise what you were doing. But at the time, you just know in a way that you can't be there. You just Mm -hmm. don't want to be there. There is such a sense of dissonance, such a sense of disconnect, such discomfort 
Mm-hmm. And, and when you look back, you can find, I certainly can find many key events that were turning points that planted those seeds of doubt and disconnect. And I've understood this as the creation of a double life, that even from the earliest time, from my teenage years, I had something else going on underneath, something subterranean that I couldn't even acknowledge to myself, where I would speak publicly or in evangelistic conversations with great authority about my beliefs. But underneath, there was a sense of, I don't know if I really believe this. I don't know what this is all about. Is this true? Is this okay? And in the end, that double life becomes, thankfully, um, a useful and um, a happy place in some ways that you can inhabit after you've left the church because there it is for you, kind of like a like a um, shipwreck. I feel like I could rise it from the bottom of the ocean and there it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, were you already on, um, you know, so you got married very young, all that stuff, but were you already interested in social work and psychotherapy or was that something that happened after deconstruction and after sort of leaving? No, no, I was always interested and I think, this is always interesting to reflect on as well, that when I was at school, I was sort of had my twin loves of politics and religion. And I was a bit into the liberation politics of the 70s, which was quite common in South American countries. And I wanted progressive political reform. And then I had an incident in my final year of school. It sounds very dramatic. So just need to warn your listeners, it was quite dramatic. Um, (laughs) I had a boyfriend who actually murdered um, a member of his family. Mm. What? Oh, my God. It was really huge. Yeah. That's a big deal. It was a big deal. And at the time, I was so concerned for him and his welfare because I was very young and idealistic that I thought that with my love of Jesus, my love of progressive politics, people going to prison, prison reform, I'll do social work. So that was, it was really quite a funny thing, not a funny thing, funny, peculiar. Yes, funny in a peculiar way. Yeah. I think my parents wanted me to do medicine or something more traditional, but Mm -hmm. I found a very happy home in social work because it does allow progressive politics. But I spent most of my degree trying to convert people, including the lecturers. I mean, it's just a shocker. Oh, it's always the people who are the most fervent and the most, like, I guess, crazy that end up leaving, like leaving the flock. And it's so funny to me that that it's always the ones that are so strong on trying to convert everyone. Because I was so convicted in my spirit when I was a Christian so convicted and um I wasn't like a big like evangelist but I wanted to understand why people didn't want to follow God like I really wanted to have those deep conversations with total strangers and um 
now it's just translated into different things, but I do find it's funny that it's always the most fervent, the ones who are like, have this like leadership ability and the church is just like taking all of their good qualities and they're just like putting evangelism into it and indoctrination and saying, go and teach, like you have these gifts. And then, and then you're the one who ends up leaving. Well, they don't like it because sometimes those of us use our gifts on the other side. Right. Right, because we're going to use the same gifts. Like, I have the gift of communication. And so they were always like, you should be a leader. You should be in leadership. Okay, great. Now I have a podcast that talks about how horrible the church is. (laughs) (laughs) And when I did my PhD to research about why people were leaving the church and how they were, you know, reconstructing and deconstructing identity, the funny thing was my PhD supervisor was one of those lecturers from all those years ago who I tried to convert. Oh, that must have been funny for them. (laughs) It was. She laughed her head off. At university, she used to wear a gay lib badge. You probably don't know gay lib. Those were the badges people wore in the 80s. So this was like progressive gay politics. And we used to think, oh, gay lib, we have to convert her because, you know, she's sort of part of the homosexual agenda. I mean, it's just (laughs) appalling. And so she was my PhD supervisor and is now one of my best friends. So there you are. How the turntables. It worked out in the end. It really did. That's beautiful. (laughs) That is really beautiful. And did, um, after you got into social work, did psychotherapy just sort of follow after that? Well, not really, you know, Rachel. You know, social work, you can do all sorts of things. And I worked in hospitals and um, child protection and adoption and all different places. Um, In the early 90s, I was introduced to narrative therapy, which is a big school of therapy um, that kind of dominated in Australia and New Zealand and now a lot of North America. And it just seemed to be the sort of therapy that would suit me. So I started studying it and that was when I... Um, kind of changed direction more into the psychotherapy. So I've I've been in practice now since 2000. So that's a long time, more yeah. than 20 years in private practice. Mm-hmm. So now I, you know, teach at university and supervise other people. I'm, you know, in the senior part of my career rather than the training part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're professional now. Yeah. Well, that leads us into our next question, because now we're talking career. What was the inspiration behind your book, Leaving Christian Fundamentalism and the Reconstruction of Identity? Well, there was a lot of things. And as I've mentioned, it was my own deconversion was, of course, perhaps the greatest impetus. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking I'll just write a series of stories about people who've deconverted. And then I started doing that and realised, no, no, I'm going to make this professional. And so my book is all about an analysis of power because I really wanted to get into the whole power structures of the church and what they do to people, what they do to women, what they do to the LGBTQ community, how the church exerts its power. So that's what I was really interested in. Um, My sister also 
had a huge influence on me. My sister was gay and died in 2008. And thankfully, I had deconverted, if you like, disaffiliated by the time she died. And I'm very grateful for that and was able to apologise to her for all the appalling things I had said over the years because there were some very appalling things I said. But after she died, it just became so apparent to me that talking to people about heaven and hell and eternal punishment and creating identities out of fear was so damaging to people's psyche. It was such a cruel thing to do to people. Um, So that was a huge impetus, her death. So a couple of years after she died, that's when I started my PhD. And so then my book I rewrote after the PhD. And since then, I would like to think of myself as an advocate um, for or an activist and an advocate for people who have deconverted. And a lot of people are too scared to speak. A lot of people still feel terribly distressed and want to hide what has happened to them. So I'm not scared anymore. So I feel like I've got a responsibility to speak on behalf of lots of other people. I love that. I love that so much. Why do you love that so much? Just that you're like not scared to advocate and to be an activist for it. I think it's we're in an interesting time right now because the podcast is finally starting to gain some attention. And that's a good thing and it's also a bad thing. And uh it's interesting when you said earlier you were when you were started to deconstruct, you were kind of drifting away quietly, you didn't really want to it attract those conversations and that inquiry that a lot of people who are still in that lifestyle were going to have for you. And I find that I am now in that place because I have chosen to speak out, which is, you know, kind of shaky and wobbly sometimes, um, anxiety inducing, and it's attracted some attention from people who I was raised, you know, raised with or raised near and who are still in the lifestyle and who, who feel this deep need to reach out and share how they feel like I may be harming myself and others by continuing to yes. um, have this conversation. Yes. Yeah. Well, look, I, I can relate to everything you've said and I have been through that uh, but it does actually ease with time the fear um, and probably with age um, and the idea as women they can't hurt us anymore I mean women are particularly vulnerable in these high demand religious communities being told who to be how to be submissive quiet and gentle spirit all of that shame I carried for years for not being that sort of Christian woman. Mm. And now the kind of the pleasure that you can be in standing on your own ground, being your own person, um, it does trump the fear, thankfully. I mean, I remember I wrote a letter to the Herald, sorry, the Sydney Morning Herald, the local newspaper here, Mm -hmm. many years ago talking about how the church was so cruel to people of the LGBT community. And I was terrified when it was published. It was a kind of a real diatribe against the Archbishop of Sydney. I was terrified. Mm 
you know, I could feel my heart beating out of my chest and it was a real test for me. But it was very important I did it because it was a public statement and people saw it. Now, some of my old Christian friends, as you mentioned, have tried to speak to me, but what does happen next, and maybe your listeners have experienced this, is that they stop trying and the waters go over the top of you and it's as if you were never born. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so whatever I say or don't say, nobody's really that interested anymore. I'm just now regarded as a crank and somebody said the Antichrist or words to that effect. Oh, yeah, I know. That's horrible. Antichrist. That's extreme. It's a bit extreme. extreme. It's extreme and it's foolish and it's ignorant and it's more Mm -hmm. fear-mongering. So, but but it is interesting because I thought there may be a more determined effort to to speak to me but it is interesting how the waters do go over the top of you and I have no interest in engaging in apologetic discussions I've got no interest in that and the no, politics just go round and round and round and round they go again. round and round and the politics of right-wing Christianity now is so toxic both mm-hmm. in our country and in yours it's terrifying it's terrifying Christian and, nationalism you know, we have a prime minister who's a born-again Christian Pentecostal and sort of has gone about populating government with fellow believers, fellow Pentecostals and evangelicals, and this all happens by stealth to sort of control the narrative. You know, we have an election here in a month, thank goodness, but, you know, this is our Trump moment. You know, no. if, if, if the country re-elects this prime minister, it takes the country in a very right-wing direction. So, you know, I'm very concerned about that because, of course, a lot of the right-wing Christians do support these kinds of politics. Yes. And simply you are, because they're Christian. Simply because they're Christian or say they are. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's a huge thing. Um, so a little bit going back to your book, which sure. I haven't read yet, but I'm very excited to read. Um, <laughs> I Well, just even in the title, I think reconstructing your identity after leaving religion <laughs> is such a hard thing to do. So I'm wondering like how your journey was with that. And um if there's any sort of like, I know there is not one right way to do that, but if sure. there's any sort of advice or guidance or anything like that that you could give people from your you own know, experience. It's, it's an interesting thing. One of the people in my books, well, actually several of them speak about this newfound freedom of being able to work things out from scratch. So the idea that once you won't, you're not a Christian, you're going to go off the rails, you're going to become some kind of immoral, terrible sinner. Yeah. And, in fact, that was not at all the case. As they said, just kept on going, going to work, doing the right thing, (laughs) and um, nothing really different. And Mm -hmm. they were talking about that they 
could become interested in other things that they always had been, but there there was now space. You could crack open some space because church life takes up so much time. Mm -hmm. So one said he got more involved in the environmental movement. One said he found his creativity. He could play the guitar without needing to play Christian songs. Mm. There was this sense of discarding, you know, like a snake sloughs Mm. off its skin. It's that kind of experience that you might feel a little bit skinless for a while, but it's quite refreshing to start thinking about things. Mm -hmm. And people said in, in my book, you know, I actually had to think about why abortion or termination may or may not be okay or not okay. I actually could rethink male and female relationships without this lens, Mm -hmm. without this overarching dogma. So I actually found that refreshing too. That I could, it was like that double life I mentioned. All my ideas about feminism and about equality and they could all be there. I didn't have to deny them anymore. I didn't have to subsume them under the Christian banner. But it does take time. You've got to kind of rethink a lot of, well, a lot of everything. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to live in this world? What does it mean to live a good life? What's actually important? What is the meaning of life? I found all of this quite enjoyable. I know not everybody does because I'm not, I'm not desperate to find certainty. I actually like the idea of an open mind and I like the idea of reading different things and different philosophy. So I'm not on a quest for certainty anymore. And that is quite liberating. So mm-hmm. the, the greatest philosophers all say that the, the most peaceful way of being is to embrace uncertainty. Well, I think that's not bad advice. That's not. And I actually think that a lot of us in the Christian world did have so much uncertainty, but there was so much shame about that uncertainty. You kept having to push it down because, you know, you had to be certain, had to have faith. You had to pray without doubt, pray with faith. The prayer of a righteous man achieves so much or whatever it said. And I think to let that uncertainty sit there can be quite refreshing, can be quite um, take it just just eases a lot of the shame of the past I have found. Mm -hmm. Look, having said that, it's not always straightforward because for me in some ways I was somewhat lucky in that my husband also went on a deconstruction journey. And all my kids. So we were all immersed. So almost together. All the kids, well, they're adults now. They all Mm. went on their own journeys. And my husband went on his own journey. But we've all sort of come back together. And my kids now make jokes about all those forced Sunday school attendances. And thankfully, (laughs) they don't hate me too much. At least they can joke with you about it. I'm still not able. I'm not able to bring this up with my parents quite yet. They know I'm deconstructing. They know I have a podcast about it. 
they won't listen to it and, and they don't parents, want to talk about it <laughs> I know, but are your parents still in the church they are i mean they are yeah. not as involved as they were before they yeah. were southern so baptist like ah uh, right yeah yeah so they're not as involved as they, as they were before and they aren't they're technically in ministry still but it's under no longer a mission board it's a holistic community transformation kind you of social like social justice like company which is cool they're a cool company i like the company but it is still like mission work where you raise support and you you get prayer partners and yeah don't you think that that's can be all part of the trajectory i yeah everybody's spiritual path is so different you see i started in the absolute high demand church then i went to a church that honored women more i made that step and that was huge when i was a younger woman where women preached where people went oh my goodness that's all dreadful so I went to that church and so I made that progress and then after I left that I looked for ages for some progressive Christian community I went to those house churches oh we were house church kids remember all of that I did all of that I went to the gay church Mm -hmm. I like the gay church the gay gay church church is probably amazing we love the gay church I love the gay church and I went to them all um, I also thought I'll get back to Judaism because my father's Jewish. I'll go to the liberal shul. So I went to the shul and I thought I'll become a liberal Jew, certainly not orthodox. So it's not as though the whole spiritual tap just turned off. So I think about right. your parents. We all are trying to find some ground to stand on that's got a degree of authenticity. But in the end, I didn't want to join the Jewish community. Maybe I still will. In the end, I didn't want to go to the house church. I just didn't want to join another group where anybody told me what to do or what to think. I mean, I've been so yes. that part. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that part. I think We're it's funny. There's, there's like a reverse trajectory so so the trajectory you're talking about is a reverse trajectory because there's the trajectory we we grew up on which was you know what you were describing earlier all the things that you did to be a good churchgoer and a good church member a good christian um and then there's that reverse thing that happens where you kind of start to slowly drift away you seek out other kinds of spirituality you seek out other kinds of organized religion and groups to because you're still seeking that connection with a that spiritual side of yourself which we all have and so there's this this seeking out of of trying to reach that and then there's a seeking out of connection like wanting to connect with other like-minded people who are also on this searching and i i do think that at the end of the day it comes down to those two very things seeking community and seeking connection with source like Mm -hmm. it's very simple and i think the it is interesting. I'm, I am watching my parents slowly go down that reverse trajectory because they were part of a very strict like group of Christians and it has over the years gotten less and less and less and less. And now they're more in social work than they are in like, they're not church planting anymore. Well, they're not starting you know, it churches. It is very interesting. It is very interesting. I mean, we had a group in Sydney here that is called Equal Voices, which is about community with diversity, which is all about apologies to the gay community 
and reconciliation with gay Christians. And I thought, I'm going to get into that group. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is very interesting, the groups. And I have a lot of clients that I see that have found a degree of comfort and connection with some of these more diverse communities. And I absolutely respect that because, of course, I'm not wanting to prescribe or advise people about their spiritual journey, far from it, because, of course, everybody's different. But for me, I react so much to people telling me this is the way to live. I mean, I had years where, where, you know, pastors and men in authority said you're not allowed to read that book. You probably had this too. I was reading books about more uh, progressive books about women in ministry and, oh, no, I wasn't allowed to read those books because, of course, you know, um, that might mean that I wouldn't submit and women aren't allowed to be in leadership roles to teach to my husband or to anybody else. So don't worry, I remind my husband of some of the answers he used to say. (laughs) I am fine now. Thank you. (laughs) What advice can you give other people who are trying to find themselves again after religion? Like, you know, people who, you know, maybe your clients or, um, people like us who are just trying to rediscover our identity and find some solid ground to stand on in that wavering and that searching. Well, it is interesting now. There's so many podcasts and groups that people can join. There's online groups. They're on Instagram. They're on Facebook. Mm -hmm. They're on Twitter. There's the whole hashtag expangelical community, hashtag I got out community. I mean, There are a lot of communities, and certainly when I left, we had none of this. I remember looking up xchristians.net. I don't even know if they still exist, but I like Was that a thing? I don't know. That's that's a long time ago. That was, oh, maybe more than 10 years ago. That's when you had to just guess what the name of the website was and wing it in the search engine. Hope it lands. (laughs) Is that a thing? <laughs> and, it, and I read, I read maybe 20 memoirs. I can see them all still sitting on my shelf, all of that mm. leaving the fold. That's yes. Marlene Winnell's book, Great I Lost My Faith. I read maybe 20 of those books. And there's, look, in my book, if you want to read books, there is a bibliography that's as long as your arm about books that you could read, probably as long as everybody, you know, 20 arms. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think all that helps. It certainly helped me. And, you know, if you're actually feeling quite traumatised, and I know that spiritual trauma is a term that has become quite um, useful to people, I don't think it applies to everybody because I don't know if it's always spiritual trauma or even just straight emotional abuse um, and psychological trauma. But, of course, it becomes imbued with the spiritual element. So sometimes professional help is good. I get lots of inquiries of people wanting professional help, and I, I have my books closed at the moment, unfortunately for some, because, um, but I do have some colleagues who have lived experience but also professional qualifications. So that's always a good 
psychotherapist to contact, somebody who's got lived experience of all of this, absolutely understands it, but has professional qualifications. You shouldn't go and see somebody who isn't qualified. I mean, that just is a rule of thumb. Our our podcast, we're not therapists. We're not therapists. We have to remind people every episode, we are not therapists. We are just trying to figure it out. We're just talking. Yeah, there are professionals. (laughs) We have been to Christian counselors before that have been like, you know, don't go to a Christian counselor. Don't do it. Don't do it. We know. (laughs) It was a bad idea. (laughs) There's lots of them here too. And they have a Christian counseling association. And if you're really wanting a forum that allows you space and openness and empathy and care in your journey. You do not need a Christian counsellor. I mean, I don't tell people my journey as a matter of course. I mean, it's not private. You only have to look on the internet. But a lot of people come to me explicitly, specifically for the reason they know the journey I've been on. And that's good. That's fine. So we're all above board. But, you know, I have other colleagues who are in different places. I've got a colleague who still does attend church, a very progressive reformed church, who's got an entirely different way of looking at things to me, but absolutely understands the way church communities mess with people and mess with their sense of self. So, you know, it is finding the right person. But, yes, Christian counsellors is not the person when you're deconstructing. No, no. Definitely seek out a psychiatrist who has all of their qualifications and licenses and, hey, it helps if they have a religious trauma background. It 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 actually does help, but it's not always easy to find that person. It's not, no. My sister right now, she is on her own deconstructing journey, and it's interesting because she actually works for um, the same organization my parents work for, but she is part of the training portion that like trains families who are going overseas to work in communities overseas um, how not to traumatize their children so right now I was a mission I was a missionary kid we were all missionary kids and we have um, complex trauma which is you know trauma administered over a long period of time it's prolonged it's like lots of little t's that create one big t right so um so it's interesting because she's she's going through this and then she's having to train families um, on the subject. And so there are people who are still in the communities who are making giant shifts and massive changes and are working very hard to elevate and to um, kind of just minimize the amount of trauma that these organizations, these groups of people, these mission boards, whatever, can inflict on well, on families well, and on children good that people are doing this mm-hmm. i mean yeah. it's good work I won't, I won't i won't um articulate my views on mission work in general right um because that might take another whole podcast. <laughs> that's another episode for another day which and we can do but <laughs> but back to back to just advice for people I actually think allow yourself some patience and time to do this, to basically observe yourself, 
if you can cultivate a part of yourself that is a rather benign, generous, compassionate, observing part, to observe it because we've had so much fear and shame and terror in our lives to just observe it, to not necessarily interpret or see it as good or bad, just observe what's happening to you. And that just might make it a little easier. And sometimes to, to talk to your trusted friends who aren't Christian. I have to say, that's actually another refreshing part about being an apostate, or whatever you want to call it, a disaffiliator, um, an ex-evangelical, is that your relationship with your trusted, lovely, non-Christian friends takes on a whole new dimension because you don't have to worry about their eternal destination anymore. So you can actually be really open with them without worrying about being a bad witness. You can talk to them and they can talk to you about how they have known you and seen you in the past and remind you that you weren't such a bad person and actually love you all the same and help you through your journey. I have found, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of us who were saturated in all things church lost a lot of our trusted non-Christian friends. If we even had them. <laughs> if we even had them, and that's really sad. So start cultivating them. Start finding communities of people that you always wanted to get to know but never did because, you know, the church said it was wrong because I think we've got lots of communities of people that we're interested in. That is one thing I do feel sad about is that there were so many communities at university and all through my work life that I really would have loved to have got more involved with. But, I'm, you know, I'm making up for it now. Life is long. You've got yeah. plenty of time to do it. Absolutely. You know, I'm probably older than most of the people listening to this podcast and I'm still doing it. I'm still exploring. I'm still experimenting. I'm a grandma. So, you know, not too late, everybody. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> still time there's still yeah. lots of time to deconstruct it's a lifelong journey i i don't think it ever stops i think you go through seasons of of yeah. lots and lots of heavy dark deconstruction and then seasons yeah. where it feels a lot lighter um i just went through a very heavy season and and now i feel like oh i'm so much lighter now i let all of that go i reframed you know but i have a i have a wonderful group to deconstruct with this podcast and yeah. um, our Facebook group and um, my siblings that are deconstructing actively and reaching out to me and maintaining that conversation and, and keeping it going. And um, That's I, right. yeah, I also think it's very refreshing to have friends who didn't grow up Christian because you can share with them a little bit about like how you grew up and they look at you like that is the weirdest, strangest, not okay thing I've ever heard. It's very affirming. It's like, yes. oh my God, I did go through yes. it. I yes. went through it. This was a yes. real thing. People yes. will, because Christians, current Christians will dismiss and gaslight you if you start talking about this and oh, they're like, well, oh, I'm sorry oh. that your experience with church was so bad. I'm sorry that that might have happened to you, but that doesn't speak for the whole community. You know, that yes. conversation talking to someone who didn't even get raised in the church, they look mm. at me like, holy shit, girl, you were raised in a cult. <laughs> 
I'm like, kind, yeah, basically. And they're like, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I mean, another another group that I found, well, actually, I shouldn't say group, maybe just one or two individuals. And not everybody has this, but those, those Christians that you grew up with at school, youth fellowship, all of that. I've got one who I went to school with, and we were both rabid together. And both of us now are so well out and we can have so many good laughs about back in the day. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't all bad. You know, yeah. we kind of had quite a lot of fun together and she reminds me it wasn't all bad and that's good too. Mm-hmm. But we're both out and looking back at school and at university and at our early married life together, when you're on your own, it can just look, as you say, dark and terrible. Like a ter- and and a lot of it was very cultish. Mm-hmm. But sometimes a friend can go, "Come on, it wasn't all that terrible," and remind us of the larks we used to have. That's helped me too. Yeah, because it's so nuanced. So much of it was so dark. I yet, think- yeah. I think about like Jesus camps, like how important that was for me. Cause like, I was raised overseas, parents yeah. were missionaries. I didn't get yeah. to be around a lot of kids from, yeah. you know, American kids, my own age. And so going to the Jesus camp every year was the highlight of the year, even though it was the most highly manipulative, emotionally manipulative situation I've ever been a part of. It was still the best part of the year. And we talked about it all year long until it happened yeah. again. And then we talk about it again for a whole year. And me and my sisters, I mean, we still talk about, you know, camp and bring up old stories. And I still talk to a lot of my camp friends. And it's just really interesting. Like that was the best time of my life. But also at the same time, there was so much going on under the surface, um, the indoctrination, yeah. the manipulation, yeah. Um, yeah you know, emotionally manipulating a group of young teenagers who are totally hormonal. Well, and but that was, that was the, that was the aim. Oh like yeah. 100%. Was, my Jesus camps or my church camps were the highlight of my adolescence as well. Mm-hmm. We used to go on them twice a year and look forward to them and talk about them all year. Constantly. I mean, constantly. And because the aim was to actually recruit you while you were an adolescent, while you were at your most, idealistic, vulnerable, thinking through what the world was and how to make sense of the world. And in fact, our university ministry, our campus ministry, was specifically targeted to reach people in their first year. I mean, it was strategic. Reach people in their first year of study out of school while they're at university because that's when they're at their most impressionable, vulnerable, available and idealistic with all of their values and hopes for a better world, get them, get them, get them to Bible study, convert them. It's so funny how brainwashy it is and how it's just like this little track they put you on because we would, after our first year of Jesus camp, after we had, we're sophomores at that point, we could come back as counselors for elementary school. So we could be group leaders for the elementary school at Jesus Camp. We'd be leading Bible studies. I'm 16, 17 years old, totally brainwashed, leading a group of 10-year-olds in prayer. Like this is, you know, that is young. That is so young to be doing that. Same, same. 
I'm like ten year olds with groups of ten year olds. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Like and I was like, they're like cabin mom and I'm 17. <laughs> and like what am I doing with 10 little 10 year old girls under my care at 16, 17 years old? Burning them. I'm burning them in a camp where their pa- their parents aren't there. Like there's, we're the adults. <laughs> it was you wild. Don't realize this until years later, and it's so extraordinary. I mean, I mentioned my um, beloved sister who died. She was the one that went on all the Jesus camps first, and because she had such fun, I wanted to go on them. Mm-hmm. But the thing was about my sister; she had multiple heady conversions and none of them went anywhere she kind of managed to do that she'd have the heady conversion and then throw it all out and she just used it in her work and she became a writer um but me oh no 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 I had to I had to put my foot on that conveyor belt and just couldn't get it off and I wish I'd been like her but there you go. I wonder if, and this just might be the observations I've noticed on my evangelical journey, is that LGBTQ plus people tend to be a little bit quicker to leave the fold than people who are uh, cis heterosexual. You know, and oh, I think I think oh, I think oh. it's because we kind of know deep down that we're not we're, what who we are would never be accepted and so when you come into this grand acceptance of oneself and you're like if i am not living in my truth i'm going to kill myself so you, you decide to live in your truth it, it forces you to leave i saw this with so many of my lgbtq friends um that i went to church with they were the first ones to go they were the first ones to start their deconstruction because they know that they're never going to get acceptance right and they know that the only way that that you can live your life is a celibate life, your whole life. Right. I mean, not to mention anybody who's trans, who even quite apart from the church in this country and probably similar in your country. Oh, definitely. And are 15 times more likely to suicide. And so the enormous number of um, uh, suicides attempted and completed in the gay community the gay Christian community is unconscionable. It's 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 criminal. It's terrible, and I have known people who have taken their own lives. So yeah, um, yeah, you leave because it's a matter of personal safety. Because mm-hmm. you cannot live your life with any degree of authenticity, safety, progression. Mm-hmm. That's why there are gay churches. We have equal voices here. There are ways for gay people to express some kind of Christian belief, but um, often they realise that they're just incompatible, they're incongruent. And what I find absolutely heartbreaking are those gay people that I've seen in counselling or as friends who always carry with them that sense of shame and guilt and self-disgust at who they are. And even if they're in a progressive environment, with progressive friends or even a very supportive community, they still have that sense that God can't accept them for who they are and they are at high risk of suicide. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And those are the people to look out for and your friends and to support them and to love them and to ensure that they have professional and personal support because they're at risk. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have one friend I'm thinking of right now, an old, old mm -hmm. family friend, and um, it broke my heart. He wrote a post on Facebook um, a couple years ago, basically mm -hmm. coming out and saying that he was gay. Um, but he, because he was a Christian, he had come to the conclusion that he would just never have um, in the experience of a romantic relationship or partnership, um, a sacred union, that he'd never get that. And but he was fine with it because he was going to, this was going to honor God. And it broke my heart. And I had just come out myself as queer. And mm -hmm. so I um, reached out to him and I was like, hey, I want you to know that there is a group of us who are queer mm -hmm. and we're out. Mm -hmm. And um, at the time, like I still um, had, I mean, I would say now I, I have a relationship with God, but it's different. I do mushrooms now. And that's my, <laughs> I was like, had my hand on a tree today and was listening to the heartbeat. Like, that's my relationship with God now. It's very different. But yeah. at that time, I was still like, kind of trying to figure it out and resolve it. And I'm like, I know that you can be gay and you can still honor God and you can still have a, that spiritual connection you're looking for. You can still do that. Maybe not in the same community, but mm -hmm. like you you don't have to dismiss a side of yourself that God literally gave you a side that you were born with. You cannot change this. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, there's a group of us, please reach out. And I, and I told him like, which other like former missionary kids were also out and, and, um, and supportive. He, reach out to you? he never reached out again. He never wrote me. And I, it just, uh, I just, uh, and so hard. And women, well, it's also women who are single, you know, who realize they're never going to have sex, they're never going to have children, they're never going to get married, they're in their 30s or 40s, and but they're doing it for God, for the greater good. Yeah, yeah a lot of them, when they deconstruct, they then can't have children. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, to say to people, you can't have sex, mm. this is what's saying, you cannot have sex unless you're married and heterosexual no wonder Christians have so many sexual problems. Tell me about it. Sexual dysfunction arises from a lack of education and a suppression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I certainly see a lot of couples, Christian couples over the years, that have had enormous problems expressing themselves sexually. And um, there's very good reason for it. Sex is a source of prohibition, shame guilt, horror, fear, etc. So yeah, you know, the queer community in the church and queer friends, my God, do they need sort of support? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they I mean I, I write a, a lot about this in my book, particularly women and the queer community for this very reason. It's heartbreaking, it really is, to mm -hmm. see um other LGBTQ peers um feeling like they cannot authentically live in their truth without losing their sense of connection to god in their community it breaks my heart it's well, really hard this is what leads to self-harm yeah and um and that's why we're advocates and that's why we're activists because mm -hmm. we have to speak out on behalf yeah. of those who can't yeah and there is another way i i really yeah. do believe that there is another way um I mean, gay, I, I gay churches agree. exist for people who want to stay within that theology base, you know? <laughs> so, like, they, like, there are ways, and I just, ah, I wish people would seek out other ways and start that journey of seeking instead of being complacent 
and just accepting and settling. But all of us know that place of fear and how it locks us up. All of us know that place where somebody says you're not allowed to think that, you're not allowed to read that. That's the slippery slope. That's the thin end of the wedge. You start talking to those people. You start reading that book. You start going to that group and you will be starting to degrade your faith. You're going to become liberal. You're going to become wishy-washy. You're not going to be a proper Christian anymore. And we've all drunk from this cup for so many years that you don't read it. You don't read that book. You don't talk to those people. There'll be people saying, you know, don't listen to those podcasts. We have one here which is a really lovely podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. And um, the guys don't have their real names on it because they don't want, they just call themselves by their um, initials because they don't want to be harassed mm-hmm. and trolled. I was actually considering not using my full name when I started co-hosting with Rachel, but then I saw she was using her full name and I was like, okay, maybe I can be brave and use my full name. And, and I, 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 yeah, she doesn't care. And then, then I started, um, I have a, like my social media is all private, but I do create some content for the podcast and share it on my social media. And then she cross posts it. So people can find my stuff now, if they want to, they can find me. There if they want to work, I'm out there. I'm out well, there I'm now. <laughs> also, Molly, no one has found me yet for my inner circle. So like, be, just be encouraged by that. But so many have found me. Because <laughs> I'm louder. Yet. I'm well, louder you than know, you. <laughs> I'm, I'm very public on social media about these kinds of issues. Um, and, you know, I've got a reasonably high public profile. Um, in the community and um, I just don't want to live in fear yeah, because yeah. I have for years. And, look, yeah. people can be nasty and you get trolled. Well, you just block it and delete it. Um, I, I don't feel concerned about my physical safety. Um, you know, I don't – it hasn't come to that. That's good. Right. That's good. So you have um, lots of public social media profiles. Can you tell people where they can find you oh, if they yeah. want to get in touch with you? I, um, yeah, I just post on Twitter. Okay. What's your handle and on Twitter? It's just Josie McSkimming. So it's easy. My name. So I'm, I don't have any pseudonyms. I'm not anonymous. I say who I am. So nobody can say I'm a troll. I'm a bot. I actually say um, my my posts are also about Australian issues. So if you follow me, you might learn about Australia. There so you go. <laughs> I certainly post about Australian politics because I think it's so important as an activist in this space because of this dominion theology that's creeping into our public space and the right-wing Christians that are emboldened which is what you have experienced in the U.S. And I kind of feel like we're fighting for our democracy all over the world, all over the world. I mean, Macron has just beat Le Pen. And this is very important for the world because we cannot have these right-wing people in charge. Um, So, you know, I post about this, but I'm certainly really interested in all things expangelical. 
Okay. Um, where can people find your book, Leaving Christian Fundamentalism and the Reconstruction oh, of Identity? It's, it's all online. The usual okay. online sellers. Amazon. Um, Amazon, Book Depository. You know, there's so many. Um, some people say, Josie, your book's expensive because it is a Routledge publication, which is an academic um, publishing house. So it's not like $12 or something. So sorry, folks. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a college textbook. It's a textbook. It is. It's a college book because it is about the nature of power in communities like this. But, you know, libraries will get it for you if money's a problem and the e-books available too. So just the usual places. Perfect. Thank you so much. And then uh, Josie mentioned earlier um, that, she has a huge bibliography in the back of the book. So if you want to do more reading and more deconstructing, there's the oh, book list. <laughs> hundreds, and hundreds and hundreds of books. But I do particularly in my book talk about all the memoirs. So I think that's a good place to start. All those memoirs. Um, I'm actually trying to write another book, which is more about my own journey of deconstruction, which is less academic and about other people and more about myself and more about my relationship with my sister so it's about being a little sister that might appeal to some people as well that sounds so beautiful I, I want to read that, that one yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah I'm working on it I'm working on it. how's it going with with, with the project oh, it's been actually really hard because yeah. I um I kind of wrote it more of a biography but now I'm rewriting it more of a mem as a memoir yeah and it's actually quite hard to do it but no it'll it'll get there give me a year or two um I'm working on it I have an agent so I'm hoping and I think for people it's about it's about those of us who grew up in families and yeah it's about my sister and how she influenced me but also the the cost of yeah fundamentalism in those most precious of relationships because it damaged them oh yeah absolutely damage and damages them and so it's that kind of story it's not telling anybody what to do it's just saying what happened to us mm -hmm. right well so excited for yeah. that new publication whenever it happens oh, yeah. <laughs> very excited for that thank you so much for joining okay. us all the way from okay. australia um, I yeah, want to remind all of our listeners to please add yourself to our Facebook group, Cheers to Leaving Support Group. There's going to be a few questions you do need to answer. We're not going to let anybody in if you don't answer the questions. This is how we keep the trolls out. Um, this group is a really great place to get some resources to talk to like-minded individuals who are also deconstructing and to kind of just have another way to communicate with me and Rachel. Um, we post in there a lot, like asking for podcast topics that you might want to have discussed, um, any potential guests that you guys might want to listen to and have on the show. And I'm always putting my own deconstruction journey on that page. So if you want to listen to all my shadow work, that's where it's happening. <laughs> Our Instagram is also great. It's choose to leaving. Um, Rachel runs Josie, that. Do you have an Instagram? <laughs> no, no. Look, I Does Twitter? Yeah, I've got Facebook, but I don't look at Facebook. I was just so Twitter. I'm Twitter. So Twitter. Tired okay. Of okay. Holiday photos. So I kind of pulled out of Facebook. It was all just too. Um, well, I feel much. like you you would get banned. You'd get banned from Facebook. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I 
to be honest, I've got so many other things I'm trying to do. I think just one media platform is all I can cope with. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you, you know, know what? That's fine. You're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing one of them. All right, I'm guys. Doing, I'm doing <laughs> I think that that's a wrap. Okay. That's beautiful. Thanks for having me. Thanks so for nice. coming. Thank you so, so much. For nice. And it's so lovely to sort of connect with, um, you know, American friends around this. I think people are surprised at how much we all have in common. We were probably influenced by some of the same teachers and writers. Oh, yes. um, Oh, yes. Unfortunately. But anyway. (laughs) Well, I hope you enjoy your journey through america oh, and yes. seeing your oh, son yes. and all that yes oh yes i'll see my son and um it's going to be fantastic and thank you so much for having me i really love chat with you it was great all right thank you so much have bye. a great day all right bye bye, bye josie thanks for listening to cheers to leaving Please find me on Instagram and Twitter at Cheers to Leaving. If you would like to send me a DM and give me any sort of ideas for upcoming episodes, I would love to hear from you. If you are interested in coming on the podcast to share your story, I would also love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast. It truly means so much to me. And I'll see you next time.